about preaching, especially when I do these like down front roaming whiteboard sermons, it's one that I need water to get through it. And two, I shouldn't start drinking the water until I've actually started the sermon. So I'm getting water. Good morning. Please turn with me, if you would, in the Bible to Romans chapter 2. Starting in verse 25. Circumcision. Circumcision is indeed profitable, if you keep the law. If you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, even with your written code and circumcision, as a transgressor, transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, he is a Jew, he, he is a Jew that is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So we've been working through this um, <clears throat> letter to the church in Rome. And the Apostle Paul is saying some pretty pretty amazing stuff right here at the end of this section. Because if you've been with us, the first couple chapters of this book are like pounding you. Like, all oh, right, all right, yeah, I, I know, I'm, I'm just... I'm getting the total depravity thing, and we're only in the, like, you know, two chapters in. And you can picture, especially in a first century context, the, like, first century Jewish folks that are reading this or hearing it for the first time. And, you know, you know, they were circumcised. And then here, Paul says, well, you know, circumcision of the heart. It's all about, you know, the heart. It's all about the inward Jew, right? It, it's not the outward, that, that matters. God looks at the heart. And I can picture some first century Jews going, no, 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 Paul, I did something else. <laughs> um, R.C. Sproul does this in, incredible, uh, uh, I was reading his commentary yesterday. He, he, he writes this quote <clears throat> about a, um, a guy that he was uh, in a class with or as a student. He was teaching a class. And he was talking about circumcision, and he was talking about how circumcision is an outward sign of an inward reality. This was a sign that God gave to his covenant people. It's a sign of God's promise, as God is a sign of his covenant promise. And this guy in Sproul's class stood up and said, circumcision, that is primitive, and it is obscene. And, you know, I don't know if Sproul was actually as cool with this as he puts it in his, in his commentary, but, you know, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He said he thinks about it for a second, and he gets quiet. And he looks at the student and he says, you know, I like your choice of words. 
I cannot imagine a more crass or primitive religious rite than the cutting of the foreskin of a man's flesh. It is primitive. However, the promise that God made was not for the benefit of only an agnostic elite group of intellectuals. He was communicating his promise in a sign so base, so primitive, that the least of the people in the nation could grasp it in its graphicness. I like the word obscene to describe circumcision too, because there is no better word to describe what sin is. When we look to the New Testament, we see that Christ received the curse of God when he hung on a tree. When he took upon himself the corporate sins of his people. That, he says, is the greatest obscenity that the world has ever beheld. We're not really going to talk about circumcision today, although that's what we've just done for the past five minutes. Darcy did an incredible job last week. Last week, you guys got to hear Darcy Brissett bring the thunder. I mean, just... mm. She talked about that outward sign and the inward reality. And basically what we're going to be doing is preaching the same text again today that we preached last week. So I wanted to see if there was something else there. And actually, as I read the text, I was like, wow, there seems to be a nuance here. There seems to be a tension that is existing in this first century context with this topic of circumcision. Um, Real quick, so we had the Jewish folks that were new Christians, and we had Gentile folks that were new Christians. And the Jewish folks have obviously lived for centuries thinking and knowing and believing, rightly so, that they were God's people. They were at least called to be God's chosen people, blessed to be a blessing. And then Jesus comes along, and some things are fulfilled, changed, And Paul starts using words like, well, you know, circumcision, that's that's not the point. What what matters here is a transformation of self. And if circumcision is an outward sign of that, then so be it. But but what matters here is circumcision of the heart or living in the spirit. One that seeks the praise not from men but from God. So that tension was the thing that I I was dwelling on as I struggled with this text, as I thought about what I wanted to share today. Um, So I want to take a little bit of a breather today. I want to, you know, we've been in some pretty intense scripture these past couple of weeks. I mean, this is chapter two, and we started this in what, October? Something like that, which is great. We're slowly moving our way through the text like Matthew talked about. And you get to have all kinds of nuances. You get to feel like what the text is all about and we wrestle with it. So here we have that line that Paul says it, it's circumcision of the heart in the spirit. There's something else there. There's something that matters to this conversation. There's something that matters to this tension. I want to show a clip. I want to show a clip that will probably elicit some emotional response from the some of you at least. It's something that you're probably going to remember quite well. And there's going to be some kind of black and white issues of things that are going on, things that involved money at the time. 
you should be pretty familiar with it. It was pretty big news in the early 90s. And then something else is going to happen that will elicit, hopefully, a different response. But that's what I want you guys to consider in the tension as you're watching the clip, is what else is there? If you're anything like me, when you watch this clip, you're going to say, wow, there, were, there was something else. I, I felt something else. I felt something more than just the facts, something more than just the black and white issue. Since May of 1982, he had started every Orioles game. Cal Ripken's misunderstood. He's not a great hitter who was a good shortstop. He's a great shortstop who was a good hitter. Magnificent charging the ball. Excellent going in the hole. Excellent behind the second base because when he picked up a ground ball, he could do the 360 and throw the perfect field strength. Oh, and one other thing. He loved to turn double play because he loved to go up in the air and see if he can show up after the ball. He was a tough, old-school guy. When play resumed after the strike, Cal Ripken was only 116 games shy of breaking one of the most formidable records in baseball. If he stayed healthy, that September, he would pass Lou Gehrig's mark of 2,130 consecutive games played. This was the first. 
face-to-face -face by immediately return to a disenchanted fan base. And could not have been better. As he approached the river, Ripken quietly waged a solitary campaign to refill half-empty ballparks, one fan at a time. He truly acted like an adult after each strike and saw what he could bring to the game in 1995, even at an enormous cost to himself. Signing autographs for hours and hours on the court one night when you know, we came back up from interviewing and finished our stories. It's midnight now, and we look out, and there's still a line going all the way back up into the stands, and Cal is still signing autographs. On September 6, 1995, five months after the strike had ended, the Orioles faced the California Angels in Baltimore. Tickets for this game had been sold out for months. After four and a half innings of play, the game was official. Cali Ripken had played in 2,131 consecutive games. I am not, my, my family's here. And they know that, like, the last thing that I would probably use in a sermon is a sports analogy. <laughs> but um, my wife and I watched that a couple of weeks ago, and I just cried. Because <laughs> it reminded me that, you know, we haven't, now in 2012, we haven't, uh, you know, had a winning season in, like, 20 years. We haven't won the pennant in, like, 30 um, World Series, but even though I really wasn't ever a huge baseball fan, I got to be a kid in Baltimore, Maryland, with Cal Ripken Jr. at shortstop, and it was like that, for that reason, I was one of the luckiest people in the world. There was something else there. The strike was probably vicious to the people in the industry and to the fans that were a lot more interested in this than I am. But there was something about the way that Cal played and the person that he was for our community that it just it created emotion in me that it seemed to speak to what Paul is talking about here. You want to live in that tension. You want to try to discover what it is that you're... Um, conversing over what you're fighting over. There's something else there. And I started thinking about these grand gestures that Darcy talked about last week. And I started thinking about what, what's a larger thing. As Matthew mentioned, you know, we're, I want you to be thinking about these passionate um, things that, that God has placed on your heart. These ideas that, that God has, um, these topics that maybe that God has laid on you. The things that you make you uh, come alive. The things that, that make you want to get up in the morning. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit and kind of back up out of the forest and like back off away from the trees a little bit and just kind of look at the panorama of the forest and see, wow, these are things that Christians care about. So I thought, well, maybe I can come up with a list of like things that Christians care about. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll just create a list of things that Christians care about. Somebody help me with this? 
So, things that Christians care about. I think I won't use blue. Let's use brown. Um, let's start off here with an easy one. The G-O-D. What is it about God that Christians care about? I mean, hopefully have some dialogue in the back. Willingness to share his his word. God's love, and you actually mentioned a whole other one that I wanted to talk about, so we'll get to that in a second. But I came up when I was thinking about this with, I guess, a couple of different things to say. Um, one, I think you're absolutely right. We are concerned with God's love. We are concerned with. Um, um, that he'd be merciful. Well, how about this? How about we try to think about it in a larger picture and think about, we think about his revelation, how God reveals himself. We think about um, his character. What is it that makes God God? And we're concerned about judgment, how that character relates to us, right? And we look at God as three beings, the Father, not three beings, one being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's how we look at God's revelation, how God's character, and look at how God judges us. Is this an easy thing to talk about? Is this something that we can say, this is God, and that's it? No. We need each other for this, right? This is something that we want to wrestle with. This is something that we don't just want to write the book about and write about a handful of words up on a board and say, well, that's it, that's God, check. No, it's taken centuries and it will take centuries from now to talk and wrestle about what it is that God is. How about the Bible? Somebody you mentioned the Bible before. What is the Bible? It's a 66-book canon, right, of sacred scripture. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39. How many books are in the New Testament? 27, you can do math. What's in the Bible? History, right? Narrative? Poetry? Psalms? Ezekiel? Prophecy? Wisdom literature? The Gospels have parables? And letters? This is like a narrative arc. There's a narrative arc to Scripture that goes from Genesis 1 and 2 to... Revelation 21 to 22, and in the middle is sin and how sin is dealt with. Is that an easy thing to talk about? Is that an easy thing to say that, you know, we talk about the Bible having authority. The Bible is a story. The Bible is a poem. The Bible is a parable. The Bible is wisdom literature. The Bible is a letter, like Paul's writing to Rome, a letter to a people. This is very personal things. These are very intimate things. This isn't a black and white kind of, this is obviously what it is. But we Christians still say that we believe in sola scriptura. Scripture alone is going gonna, is gonna to tell us how to be a Christian. We talk about the Holy Bible because of its otherness. It's another kind of book. And it's a narrative that has authority. Okay, what else? Food. Food? I like it. I like it. 
food. What is it about food that we should wrestle with? Who said it? Yeah, Craig. Why food? It brings people together. And can we overindulge? Yes, we can. Not an easy thing to come to grips with, ladies and gentlemen. I know from personal experience. What else? Community. How about each other? When I'm putting together a sermon and I can say to Matthew Winner, I say, you know, I want to talk about what makes us passionate, what makes the people of God come alive. And he's able to, to put together a worship set that kind of talks about that and speaks to that. And he puts it together, um, you know, he reads certain scriptures like, oh, I think that's awesome. That's so good. That's exactly what we need to be talking about. Like that's there's something else there, right? There's something there to each other, and that's something that's not just going to be um, checked off. It's not just going to be a box checked away. And that also leads to let's use a new color because nobody wants to keep looking at brown. How about the church? The church estimated 2.2 billion Christians in the world, making up roughly a third of the world's population. Now, what do we do with those numbers? What does it mean that Christianity is not a small religion? How many of these numbers would we consider to be authentic? What responsibilities do we have to call them authentic or not? What does it say about our voice? You know, maybe... If the Bible says that we are called to live in unity, should we speak with a unified voice? What does it mean that the church has multiple different kind of diversified opinions and thoughts? What does it mean for the unity of Christ to have diversity in thoughts and opinions? What does it mean to be the church in the world? What else? There's lots of other ones, right? Prayer. Prayer. All right. Now we're into it. So when we pray, let's see, we can do intercession, right? Asking God to get involved. What other kind of prayers are there? Confession. Confession. What else? Thanksgiving. Jan, what did you say? And praise. Praise and adoration. Maybe vows. Did I have going with anything else? Thanksgiving. How about conversation? Conversation and supplication. All right. What else besides prayer? prayer? You know, obviously not an easy thing. Again, justice. Ooh, justice. What does it mean for the church to stand for justice? Is that just an... Oh, that's not very good. Blue. Yeah, blue. All right. What does it mean for the church to say we want to be a people that are about justice? Is that something that's just easily like, well, this is what we need to be doing to deal with justice, and then that's it? No, it's complicated. Um, what else? Marlene? What does he say? What does he do? What does God say? All right. All right. 
Okay, what else? Mar uh, <laughs> well, that's part of the conversation then, isn't it? Maybe that's the reason why we're talking about it. I think you're absolutely right. Um, but what's another? Tim. Personal plan. That's a good one. How about theology? Sometimes... I plan on actually myself going to seminary later this year and starting that process. There are people that have just been utterly blown away by sitting down and carefully working through the scriptures and developing words and creeds and doctrines that help each other understand exactly what it is that talking about God's revelation, his character, and his judgment. On the other hand, there are people that have said, no, theology, we need to back off. We need to not get our man-made sinfulness into those words. We need to create a theology that is, it is looser, that because we, we can't put God in a box. There's a guy that, um, that wrote a book uh, last couple of years ago called... Um, uh, the guy's named Peter Rollins. He wrote a book called How Not to Speak of God. And then he talked about how um, the moment we say something about God, like God is awesome, then we've automatically uh, put our own language to God and tarted, automatically started to explain God. And the moment we say anything about God, we've automatically lessened him. Of course, and then the other hand, you have the theologians that are saying, no, we didn't just haphazardly throw these creeds together. We passionately and carefully chose our words to help each other understand God more. There is a tension there. There is a tension there. How about politics? How about worship? How about both of those together? How about stewardship and the environment? A couple of years ago, there was a guy named Matthew Sleeth wrote a book called Serve God, Save the Planets. He believed that there was something that Christians weren't seeing in regards to how we treat the creation that we've been charged to steward, that we've been charged uh, stewardship with. Um, okay, just a couple more. How about culture? How we engage with culture. There's a guy named Andy Crouch wrote a book called Culture Making. Extremely convicting book. I'm like halfway through this thing and I can't just finish it because it's like every page is like, oh, I'm doing it wrong again. Because he talks about the way we, um, he talks about how the only way to change culture is to create it. And in what ways do Christians engage with the arts, with film, with TV, with music, with literature? If at the center of our being is this truth that we were created in the image of a creator, then what does it say about our creative energies? Should the church be the place where like the best art comes from and the best music comes from and the best movies because we have the centerpiece of our identity is this creative energy? What about giving God the glory? Great. I'm kind of connected with worship there. One thing that I thought about is, as a history major, 
I was somehow persuaded to find extreme connections between my faith and history. And I was having this conversation with somebody that preached here a couple of weeks ago. And she said, and she's listening to this now. She said, oh, you, you're into history. That's great. I mean, it's great that you're so passionate about it, but I've always found it to be, you know, boring facts and dates. You know. <laughs> you know, boring facts and dates. Boring facts and dates. She goes, yeah, like the Civil War. That, you know, you're all about the Civil War, right? That's just, you know, facts and dates. And I said, okay. I could say, from 1861 to 1865, the American Civil War was fought in response to 11 southern states declaring their secession from the Union and the creation of a new Confederate States of America. After four years of warfare, mostly within the southern states, the Confederacy surrendered and slavery, which was a major factor in the political disagreements of the day, was outlawed everywhere in the nation by the end of 1865. At the end of the conflict, casualties affected nearly 1 in 15 American males. Major figures in the war were Union President Abraham Lincoln, who was assassinated towards the end of the war, Confederate President Jefferson Davis, Union General Ulysses S. Grant, who later became the 18th President of the United States, and Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Okay? If somebody said, what is the American Civil War, that may be a kind of a black and white kind of thing but to explain it. But I said, No! Are you crazy? The American Civil War is one of the most incredible, epic poems that have ever existed in God's creation. It started with with, the, with Fort Sumter. Nobody nobody was killed in Fort Sumter. And, and nobody was even hurt, I think, until they were on their way back. And then it went to the first battle of Manassas, which was really just a two armed uh, mobs of people with with uh, an armed mobs of people that that looked like. Things were just going to go crazy. And it goes on to Antietam, which was one of the bloodiest battles in American history, to uh, Gettysburg, which was one of the greatest and most epic battles in American history, all the way through um, Appomattox, where General Lee has to surrender. You know, General Lee, which was all about just fighting for Virginia and something about fighting for his country meant fighting for Virginia. And what does that say about states' rights and federal rights? And um, he has to surrender to Ulysses S. Grant. Who, who's this man that struggled with drunkenness his entire, his, most of his adult life? And then weeks after that, there's John Wilkes Booth who assassins the, assassinates the president. Like, there's so much epic poetry in this. Like, this is one of the most, like, this is one of the things that gets me out of bed in the morning is like, I want to study the American Civil War. You know, when I practice that, Last night here, when you all weren't here, I didn't get as much applause. But there was one thing that I didn't hear anybody say. Revolution. That God's doing something in our midst. That God has something to say about who we are. That the voice that we have can be revolutionary. And that the love that Christ talks about can be radically revolutionary. One more history quote, going back a couple of years. Isn't that what Romans 2, 28, 29 reflect revolution? Well, aren't you getting ahead of me? Would you like to finish the sermon? <laughs> it's good thinking. It's good thinking. John Adams said this about the American Revolution. He says that 
by what do we mean by the American Revolution? Do we mean the American War? The Revolution was affected before the war commenced. The Revolution was in the minds and hearts of the people. History makes me come alive. What makes you come alive? There's a couple of things I want to say in closing. Turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Starting in verse 13. You, brethren, you've been called to liberty. Not only to use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love for one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love, the, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. As we look at this forest, this forest of things that Christians care about, what does it mean that this tree is next to this tree? And what does it mean when this tree is connected to this tree and when this tree has branches with leaves that fall on that tree and how we see it all connected? Because I think that that interconnectivity is a piece to what God is talking about through Paul. We have freedom, as Paul is talking about here. We've been called to liberty. It says, do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. These things are, about, are not about your personal glorification. They are about God working through his people. But how do we know? How do we know whether something is, as Paul puts it, in the spirit? Well, in Galatians, he talks about what the fruit of the spirit would look like. I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit flesh uh, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. I love that. They're evident. Why are they evident? Because we do them all the time. All of us. They're adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Okay, maybe, maybe we got sorcery. Check. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you before in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you want to look for the Spirit, if you want to understand where God's working and, and try to figure out whether this stuff is our passions and God has partnered with us, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who are Christ's have been crucified, have crucified the flesh, which is passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Now, I... There was one word that really came out for me when I was reading that again this past week, and that was the word gentleness. 
And I'm going to take this down for now because we have a, a slide. I was starting to think about what does gentleness mean? Does it mean like wimpiness? No, I think gentleness means like a restrained power. Like somebody that has done the work. Somebody that is matured. And they know when, when hard times come how to react in just the right way. Look at Obi-Wan Kenobi. Episode 1, he's young, but he's at times far wiser than Qui-Gon. Episode 2, he becomes this mentor of Anakin. Uh, episode 3, look, that's him at the Jedi Council. And then Alec Guinness in the, in the original trilogy, a well-aged, fine, single malt scotch of a man. I mean, Alec Guinness. And then you get, like, Jim Beam. You get little Anakin Skywalker in episode one. He looks a little like James there. That scares me. <laughs> Who goes, episode two down there, who's like, he's kind of like this young, cocky kid. Episode three starts getting, like, a little bit more mean. He starts making some bad choices. The bad choices that he made as a young kid, like, doing kind of crazy stuff, develop into a really kind of darkness to where we get Darth Vader. Okay. That's what I like about gentleness. That, that when we mature through our passions, that's what we can have. We can have this maturity. We can have this passion um, that really makes uh, a difference in the world. One final thing. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. As many... Oh, for my part, I'm going to boast about nothing but the cross of our Master Jesus Christ. Because of that cross. I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. Can't you see the central issue in all this? It's not what you do. It's not what you and I do. Submit to circumcision, reject circumcision. It's what God is doing. And he is creating something totally new. All who walk by this standard are the true Israel of God. His chosen people, his people, peace and mercy on them. Friends, we are here today to remind each other that God is about nothing short of new creation in each other. That God is interested in developing our character through the, and so that we can see the fruits of the Spirit in our character. We can see God at work in our lives and that that will matter to the world. That we are not a Christian people that hide under a rock. We are a Christian people that have a voice, that things matter to us, and they don't matter to us just because they're about our things. They matter to us because God is doing something on our hearts and through his spirit. Um, one thing that we didn't mention up there that the church is interested in, the Christians are interested in, is the sacraments. Darcy talked brilliantly about baptism last night, and Jason's going to lead us in a time of the Eucharist, Mass, Lord's Supper, Communion right now.